That's in the air, this could be out. Diamond's underneath it, will he catch it? He's got good hands, he's got him, yes he has. Diamond's got him in the deep, having fumbled all night, he's taken the big one. Hello and welcome to Couch Talk. Today's guest is former Australian captain Steve Waugh. He talks about his new book, The Meaning of Luck, and the role of luck in sports, business, and life. He also talks about the recently concluded Ashes, the Argus review that he contributed to two years ago, role of leadership in cricket, amongst other things. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. It's uh, absolutely my privilege and uh, pleasure having you on. You have a Thanks, new, Edmund. you have a new book out, the uh, meaning of luck. First of all, congratulations on a wonderful book that has so many moments, you know, uh, teaching moments. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I really enjoyed the process of writing the book. I, I write all my books longhand, um, and I've self-published this one, so it's been a bit of a challenge. It's my thirteenth book, but this one is a bit different than the other books. It's more about lessons I've learned and people I've met along the way, and exploring the concept of luck. So, what motivated you into writing it? Uh, look, I'd, I'd, it's been eight years since I've written my, my last book, Out of My Comfort Zone. A lot of people were wanting to know when I was going to write my next one. Um, and it just happened to, to be a year where there's 10 Ashes Test Match, so a lot of focus around cricket. Uh, I wanted to also tell my story of my wife who had a stroke eight years ago, and, um, and, and, and really that's where the concept of the book come, The Meaning of Luck, because she considers her stroke now a stroke of luck because it gave her a different perspective on life after she recovered her rehabilitation, um, and she prioritises differently than when she did before. So that's where the meaning of luck came from, and it's sort of stories about my business life, charity, and also sport. And I want to talk to you about all of that, but first, uh, from the cricket aspect, the sporting aspect of it, you know, we often hear things like, you know, you make your own luck, or uh, the fortune yeah. favours the brave. Uh, from your playing experience, is luck a byproduct of someone or a team not being afraid of failure, or is it a result of uh, being there, done that, a track record of success, or is it something completely different? Yeah, a combination of all those, I think. Um, you know, my take on luck is that, yes, we all have good and moments of good and bad luck, but it's what you do with those or how you decide to turn around those bad pieces of luck into good luck. Um, and it's really about your attitude, you know, whether you're up for the battle, whether you can recover the next day after having a bad day, whether you can see opportunities, whether you're open opportunities, mm-hmm. um, and whether you're prepared to fail in order to succeed. So you've got to put yourself out there on a limb sometimes and take a bit of a risk. And I think the people who do that, who have a go, um, they they attract good luck because they're positive and they've got good body language and, and positive things seem to happen where conversely if you've got a, a negative mindset and you're, you're pretty down about things, you, you block yourself off to opportunities and uh, and everything seems to go against you. You know, one of the interesting things that uh, you talk about in this book, uh, Meaning of Luck, is the uh, you know, line from your 1997 Ashes diary about, you know, people never describe a guy who scores 20 mm-hmm. after being dropped or not as being lucky, whereas some, uh, if a batsman goes on to score a century, then he's considered, seen to be a very lucky yeah. guy. So it <laughs> seems the uh, definition of luck be, or being seen as lucky is how successful you are after you afforded that uh, slice of fortune? Yeah, I think in cricket that's definitely the case. In sport that's definitely the case because we all have moments where things go for us or against us um, and when they you know, go our way, we've got to make the most of that opportunity. Um, um, I think the really good players make the most of those little pieces of good fortune that come their way. The ones that aren't so um, diligent in their, in, their, in their 
pre-game planning or their technique can't capitalise on those moments of good fortune. So they they consider themselves unlucky because you know they have things go against them. But the, but the good people capitalise on those bits bits of good fortune. I've always been fascinated, especially with your off-field work, uh, with uh, your Steve Waugh Foundation, mm-hmm. as well yeah. as with uh, the Calcutta Foundation, Uday in, in Calcutta. Yeah. You know, and it's quite well known. Um, congratulations mm-hmm. on all the good work. Uh, you know, but I want to talk about the case of those children in terms of, you know, I'm trying to see how your definition of luck comes in because all these kids, they are in situations that they never bargained for, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. So how do you define luck from their perspective, from these kids' perspective? Yeah, look, it, um, there's different degrees of the definition, that's for sure. Look, if you're born into a slum somewhere in Calcutta, I mean, that is obviously bad luck because it's totally over your control. But what is in your control after that moment is what you do with your life and <clears throat> the direction you take and the attitude you have. And, look, we're all not going to play cricket for Australia. We'll be CEOs of companies. But at the end of the day, if you make the most of your talent and um, and, and, and grasp the opportunity in front of you, you can't, anyone can make, make a fist of, of their life and be a really positive contributor. So, yeah, sure, where you're born sometimes can be can be really bad luck and it's very hard to get out of that situation. But I look at the kids from the Udayan and the kids we support in rare diseases in Australia and um, they all have fantastic attitudes and they make the most of every day and they are actually achieving goals um, each and every day. There was this one passage in the book uh, which made me emotionally upset because I was reading, this is about your first interaction with the mm-hmm. woman that had yeah. leprosy for 30 years and you had asked yeah. her through an interpreter what mm-hmm. does she look forward to in life? And she said nothing. Yes. You know? Yeah, that was, certainly was. Um, it struck me as well at the time. I thought, wow, this is, um, you know, how lucky are the rest of us when this poor woman uh, had this terrible affliction, nothing to look forward to in life. And as you say, um, you know, the only reason she lived, I think, I wrote, was because she could. Um, so that was terribly depressing. And um, look, you want to, in some small way, try and give that person hope, maybe by giving her child an opportunity or teaching her some sort of skill that she could she could maybe put to use, some sort of hobby. So, look, I think there is something out there for everyone. At times, we people can get depressed and are in terrible situations. But I guess my advice throughout this book would be, you know, that um, you know, there is always something positive out there. You've just got to try and find it. Sometimes it's harder to find. I'm sorry to uh, continue with this uh, point, which is I'm trying to understand, you know, if you are a kid in that slum, what is the prospect of hope? Well, it's hard for me to explain it fully because I wasn't born in that area. But I see the kids there. I see that um, there is a possibility of education. Uh, look, it, it just might be the small things in the day. It might be, you know, mm-hmm. um, learning a, a new word. It could be, you know, flying the kite the best out of any of the kids in, in the quadrangle where you live in. It, um, you know, it might be really being nice to your mum and dad for that day, um, you know, helping helping somewhere around the, the house or the, or, the, or the hut they live in. So mm-hmm. you've just got to look at the small things each day and, and try and pick out a couple of things that you achieve in that day and say, OK, I'm, I've been really positive today. Um, I'm going forward in my life and I'm improving and I'm helping people. So you've just got to look at the little small steps. All right. Um, I want to switch back to uh, cricket. Uh, you know, of the current lot of international captains, you know, from Michael Clark to MS Dhoni to Ms. Barr mm. to Alistair Cook, whoever else, some of them are termed fortunate or, or lucky for the rec- records they have achieved. You know, and it's easy to understand why the dice seem to roll in the favor of certain captains. 
but what do you think does it take to be a successful captain? And of course, that is beyond having you know great set of players in your team. Mm. Yeah, of course, it helps when you got talented players. That means you can play a <laughs> certain course. brand of cricket. Um, you know, we can play aggressively when I was captain because we had talented players. But I guess it's getting everyone going in the same direction, uh, believing in the vision, putting aside sometimes their personal aspirations for the benefit of the team. Um, and just you know, keeping everyone grounded, you know, really high-achieving team with strong personalities and, and egos. You've got to just try and keep it all together somehow. And that's the biggest challenge with talented teams is to make sure that everyone's pulling in the same direction um, and they're enjoying each other's success. So that's part of the role the captain's got to provide. He's got to, you know, provide that example of you know, team first and also to keep an eye on what's going on in the team. But you also need some good people around you, some trusted lieutenants who can keep an eye out for you because the captain can't always see what's going on. So you need people in the side that uh, can give you honest feedback. There is a passage in the book, again, uh, I want to refer to that, which is you're talking about uh, Lucas Neal with uh, your time with the Socceroos. Um, where you know, talking, you're talking about the captains and leadership and stuff. You mentioned that quality captains have impact on the game without actually having to force the issue and the lead yeah. uh, without even knowing it. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting you picked that up because I thought that was a pretty significant moment in the book, actually. When I started writing, it just sort of dawned on me that sometimes the best leaders don't even know they're leading. It's just so natural that um, whatever they do, people follow. And uh, there are different types of leaders, and that's one type where... You know, it's um, just watch the way I go about things, my actions. Um, uh, and other people who, I guess, communicate differently and who are more verbal and they lead through through that process. But um, yeah, I think the best leaders I've seen are the ones that do it naturally and don't force it and don't try too hard. Because hmm. I, I want to talk a bit more about leadership because that seems to be a, one of the running themes in the book. Mm -hmm. You know, you came into the Aussie team under a very strong leader, Alan Border. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, your first test uh, wearing the baggy green as an Australian cricketer, the team was winless. And you yeah. note in the book that it was demoralizing. And the current Australian test team, they have gone through their own streak, a nine-test mm -hmm. streak where they haven't won a test match yeah. uh, and seven losses. How do you compare and contrast the kind of leadership that Alan Border showed in those trying times Mm. Where he had lost a, a great generation of, uh, you know, a generation of great players, to due to various reasons, and now Michael Clark with having lost a great set of uh, players as well. Yeah, well, Alan Border was a reluctant leader. He was, I guess, forced in the position because Kim Hughes resigned. So I don't think he wanted to be captain to start with. So it was a position that he had to learn about and and grow into, and it took him time to do that. Um, <clears throat> and obviously, we're a team that was very new, and in fact, Alan, I think. One of the early tests I played, he had played more tests than the rest of the team combined. So we were very inexperienced, more inexperienced than the current team. Uh, I guess he was fortunate in the way he had Bob Simpson came along pretty much at the same time and was a huge influence on the side and, and a tremendous coach. And they worked together as a, a good, solid unit, um, both contrasting styles. But at the end of the day, the number one thing we did was we, we became disciplined and we trained a lot harder, but we trained smarter. Um, the current group, I think, have got a lot of talent. Michael Clark is a different leader Alan Border. He really aspired and wanted the job, um, so he was ready for it straight away. But at the same time, you, you, you can't prepare to be captain of your country until you actually get the job and you find out True. what it's like. And it's never as probably, as you imagine, it's probably a lot harder than you imagined, and particularly when you're losing. So I'm sure that Border and Clark could talk probably at length about you know the, the same situations and how to get out of it. But 
the one thing I learned through Bob Simpson and, and Alan Border was that really the only way you can get out of it is, is hard work in the nets, and it's got to be quality practice, and uh, you've got to learn how to play tough test match cricket. You know, from what you went through with that team and what you have seen with this current Aussie setup, do you see <clears throat> them moving in a direction that you ended up going as well as a team in the 80s? Yeah, there's no doubt they've got talent. Um, and even during the Ashes series, they lost 3-0. They, they probably, over the five test matches, won as many sessions as England, but they didn't win the crucial moments. And that comes with experience and uh, and know-how and confidence and belief. And they lacking in a few of those areas. But once they get that, I think they've got pretty much as much talent as most teams going around. So, you know, it's just a matter of making that breakthrough and, and believing in yourself that you can win these tough test matches. All of a sudden, it becomes a lot easier. So it's... Bit of a catch-22. You're waiting to, to make one of these wins before you can um, establish yourself, but at the same time, you, you don't quite believe in yourself. So someone's really got to step up to the plate, like a Shane Watson did in the last Test match, or a Steve Smith, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden they can turn it around. It's interesting that you mentioned that because the three-nil scoreline, some might say that does not reflect exactly how close the two teams were. Mm. But, you know, a few things had gone this way or that in Trent Bridge and, uh, and Old Trafford. Yeah. Uh, etc. Um, scoreline could be different, but so I want to bring back the definition of luck uh, again. Mm. How would you apply that to the situation? Uh, yeah, I think it, I think it was a fair scoreline because you know um, England won the big moments under pressure, and that's when you've really got to test yourself out. Um, you know, I think for people who said Australia were unlucky, I would say there's one way to fix it up, and you take luck out of the equation by playing better. Mm. Um, I think when you lose close matches and it's you know. Results don't quite go your way. You always say, "Well, we didn't have much luck." But at the end of the day, if you're playing really well, you take luck out of the equation. Uh, I want to take a few listener questions as well. This first sure. one is from uh, Gaurav in Chennai. When you became the captain of the Australian team, and of course you had great players, uh, some of the all-time greats in your team, mm-hmm. uh, including yourself. And currently, Michael Clark does not have the luxury. I mean, they have, he has some really good players, but not in, perhaps in the same mm-hmm. level as yep. you know a Steve Waugh or a Mark Waugh or a Ricky Ponting or Shane Warne, Megra, so on and so forth. You know, as a captain, what, how does he approach these situations? How, what does he have to do differently to buck this trend and start getting positive results? You just got to stay positive, and you got to keep encouraging players. And I think we've got to pick and stick. I think we've been changing our side too much. That creates an air of uncertainty amongst the players. I think they. They've got to feel as if they belong to a side so they can relax and play their natural game. No, but we have, you know, pretty good players in, uh, you know, Brad Haddon's got a fantastic record and um, then you've got Shane Watson potentially could be a great player. Then you've got Harris Siddle and uh, Stark and, and uh, Pattinson and Cummings down the track. I think there's certainly a lot of talent there. It's um, it's just, again, just, just having a bit of patience right now and giving these guys opportunities. And I think... Quite a few of those could turn into really, really good test players. Uh, a bit like India, you know, with uh, Murali Vijay and, and, and Pajara and mm-hmm. uh, Virat Kohli. They're turning into very, very good test match players. And two years ago, India was worried about where's the next players coming from. If you give them a good extended run, they, they can turn it around. But we also live in a time where, you know, everybody's impatient for results. And mm-hmm. here is a question from Gary Naylor in the U.K., you, when you started off as a cricketer, you also had a, quite a bit of a run, even though you may not have, you were called as an all-rounder, and you note this in the book as well, that you were, you were in the team basically because you were bowling well, you are taking the wickets, but not scoring yep. runs. Mm-hmm. So 
But since in this time of impatience, can you see anyone being given the time to develop as a test player in the squad? Yeah, like it's an interesting question. It's this day and age, everyone wants instant results, and um, and that, that's a problem when you're trying to build for the future or see the bigger picture. Um, it is hard to do that, and uh, that's a, something the selectors are going to have to explain to the public that, look, you know, we might take a bit of short-term pain, but we want long-term gain, so we're going to stick with these guys through the thick and thin. And I think they've got to draw a line in the sand right now and say, these, these are a group of players we really think are going to carry us, and, and let's stick with them. But... Australian cricket was in a different stage when I came into the side. We had just lost 16 cricketers to the Rebel Tour of South Africa. Mm-hmm. Lily Marsh and Chapel retired. We had 19 players suddenly gone out of six domestic teams. So, you know, they didn't have many options around. They had to stick with the talent of the players, and I was seen as one of those. So I guess I was fortunate in some ways that um, there wasn't many cricketers around at that time when I was picked. You know, it gave me extra opportunities which probably aren't available now. But back in those times... Um, they were desperate times with all the retirements and players going to South Africa that I was seen as a young kid on the block. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about that because you were part of the Argus uh, review panel. You know, now two years after it has been completed, do you feel that that uh, the Australian cricket set have derived all that it could from that review? Or do you feel like uh, the, a lot of the recommendations have been left by the wayside, especially considering the lack of consistency in selection, the on-off-the-field mm. drama with the players and yeah. the firing of coaches so close to the Ashes yeah. series, mm. uh, the discipline of the players, lack of focus on first-class cricket and having a T20 tournament bang in the middle of uh, domestic season, mm. first-class season? Oh, look, I think at the end of the day, you know, we, we knew it was going to take a long time to turn cricket strike. Australian cricket around, but um, you're right, you make some valid points there that, you know, probably the recommendations haven't been followed as closely as we would have liked. Um, at the end of the day, we made 50 recommendations, the board endorsed all of those, but we also said very crucially that the key component of this was to get the right people in the right positions, and uh, I guess maybe the jury's out in some of those positions, have they got the right people? I think that's the number one, uh, I guess, objective of that committee was to Make recommendations, but then they had to go away and uh, and and source the right type of people. When you, what do you mean by right people within the uh, playing players or oh, everything? The you know, staff yeah, or you talked about you know we created positions for you know um, cricket operations for manager, and then there was you know, someone was picked as a new chairman of selectors. Um, then we said the captain and coach were going to be selectors. Now the captain's not. Yeah. Um, so look, I think we're just the Argus review was all about accountability. If, if things go wrong who is actually accountable. So at least now there's a clear line of accountability. Hmm. All right. Um, another thing I want to talk about is within the framework of a team, you know, you can have um, equals with, you know, great players, tremendous egos and all that. They may not get along well. They may not be mates, but they are very good teammates. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you've had to face some situations, you know, you when you had to drop Shane one and you note in the book that, you know, Shane never looked at you probably in the mm-hmm. same way again, even yeah. though you did what you thought was right by the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've had other situations, and now Clark has one with Shane Watson and Mickey Arthur saying that, you know, or whoever it was leaked out or whatever about cancer in the team, etc. Uh, you know, is this team camaraderie? And this is a question from a listener in Pakistan, uh, Hassan Chima. And do you think that the team camaraderie is an overrated thing? No, no you definitely got to have it. Um, and that's, that's a huge part. That's You'll always see the, the teams that are very close always win the close matches, and that's because they pull together in the tough times and they want to play for each other. So it's definitely a key component. Um, but, yeah, look, there's always going to be 
some sort of arguments within a group of 20 men travelling together and every player's not going to be each other's best buddy. But, you know, in the Australian times, teams I played in, we never had a problem with each other. They're, you know, the, the issues have more come up after we've retired and people have sort of said things. But when we're playing, it's always been a very strong unit and that was one of the strengths of the cricket sides I played in that we did all get along pretty well. Hmm. Um, I'll let you go with one question and, you know, no question to a war is complete without talking mm-hmm. about junior. And uh, this question comes from SA in Chennai and he's a huge Mark War fan as there seem to be, you know, a whole legion of Mark mm-hmm. War devotees in India. You know, he was on par with the Laras and Sachins of, you know, for a long time. And, you know, in a way he was underrated as a batsman perhaps. Uh, perhaps, you know, in a way he approached his cricket because how easily cricket came to him, perhaps. This listener wants to know what you think of the way Mark's career ended. There was no, not much fanfare associated mm. with it. You, so yeah. your take on how his career ended and perhaps your take on whether Mark should have achieved a lot more than the 8,000 runs and the 41 run average. Um, yeah, look, I think, yeah, Mark's career ended when he was dropped by the selectors, I think, um... So that's, I guess, a different way than going out on your own terms. And that mm-hmm. sort of is always more abrupt, and um, that's probably what your listeners referring to. And probably wasn't celebrated maybe the same way as if you're saying this is my last series, and you give people a chance to say goodbye. Um, so I guess Mark wasn't that sentimental about that sort of thing, so it didn't worry him too much. Um, as regard to talent, I think he he did pretty well. I'm mean, averaging 41 in Test cricket with some fantastic bowls in that era was very good. You taking the catches and. The wickets, um, I think it's a, a fantastic career. And, uh, yeah, I think the one thing Mark and myself get frustrated at often is people say Mark was more talented and I was tougher and more determined. I think at the end of the day we're equally talented. In fact, school by level, people always said I was more talented, played more shots. We just redefined our games. I mean, Mark was just as committed, but probably body language, people read into that sometimes too much. I think we're similar in a lot of ways, more similar than people recognise all right. On that note, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, good luck with the book. Yeah, look, and the book's available on iBooks now in the US, uh, UK, Canada and New Zealand. So you can you can buy that book online. Yeah, I'll certainly put out the link on the... Great, uh, mate. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Cheers, mate. That's Bye. Bye. Air, this could be out. Oh, it's underneath it. Will he catch it? He's got good hands. He's got him. Yes, he has. Oh, it's got him in the deep.